Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Your cousin from Boston. New Sam Adams Wicked Easy is light and wicked easy to drink. Which means it's wicked easy to call up some buddies for a little day sesh. So, wicked sorry I'm late. Sam Adams Wicked Easy. Boston Beer Company, Boston, Massachusetts. Drink responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 20th, 2020. We are just a few days away from opening day 2020. The White Sox are done with intra-squad scrimmages and now playing exhibition games against the Chicago Cubs and Milwaukee Brewers. While these games don't count, they do for individual players trying to make the 30-man opening day roster. We'll discuss the remaining position battles and who we think will make the opening day roster. Oh, and Luis Robert, because the hype is really building up on a national scale as more and more people around baseball are taking notice of the White Sox center fielder. Plus, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. First, let's discuss the latest exhibition game against the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Even though it's an exhibition game, it was fun to watch. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was surprised for the most part that it felt like a a real game, uh, in in some ways for better, in some ways for worse. Like you know, the action was real, and, and it was nice to see. Um, you know, it wasn't as chummy as the intra squad games. You know, where there was kind of a smiling and, and mugging back and forth and back slaps and such. It did seem like it was competitive, even if the the stakes weren't a regular game. On the other hand, it did kind of have the um, major league pace of play, that the intra-squad games were faster and brisker, and this one had the feeling more of a ESPN Sunday Night Baseball game, where there's just a lot of downtime. Uh, That's one thing that kind of jumped out to me based on uh, just the difference between this one and the, the games from the week before. Speaking of ESPN, with you being in Nashville, I assume you watched the ESPN broadcast of the game. Yep. I was lucky 
sorry, uh, <laughs> I had Jason Benetti and Steve Stone, which they were in mid-season form, and they made me laugh a few times. But how was the ESPN broadcast? Because they're calling the games back at home in Bristol, Connecticut, all season long, much like they've been doing for the KBO. Well, I, I, I was tweeting about it a little bit during the game. Uh, I think local broadcasters are really going to have a big edge over national crews this year. And I think it's almost a a disservice to play Sunday Night Baseball this year if the local crews can't get involved just because it's, you know, at least based on what I saw from the three-man crew is uh, uh, John Scambi, um, uh, Rick Sutcliffe, and Chipper Jones. And, you know, uh, Shambi's got the, the, the big voice, you know, the classically trained broadcast voice, and he can fill the room. Even if they're all just sitting in their own rooms, he knows how to project and and fill the error, but then it drops off the other guy. Sutcliffe is kind of on the quieter, slow draw side. Chipper Jones, I believe, is brand new, so he's not used to projecting. So, you know, you have this big voice, and then he hands it off to the ex-players, and it's quieter. And if you're not paying attention, if you're not locked in, if you're in a different room, you're just not going to pay attention. Uh, and, uh, you know, they talk over each other because of the delays, um, and, and you know, uh, Shambi had to kind of direct traffic a little bit and say, I'm going to ask both of you a question, Chipper, you go first, just to try to make sure they don't talk over each other. And then there'd be silence because they're afraid of talking over each other. Uh, whereas, you know, watching the games, I didn't see the Steve Stone one, uh, but I did see Jason Benetti with Chuck Garfine. And that's a case where they're both in the same room. They're both watching the same thing. They know when the other is talking. And, you know, even if, uh, you know, uh, Benetti and Garfine aren't the, uh, you know, the classic pairing we're used to, where it's a, you know, broadcaster and ex-player, both with uh, defined roles and a lot of broadcasting experience, even if it's a little bit rougher, you know, it's still smooth and they're both, uh, you know, they both have a good rapport and such. And uh, they're telling you what you want to know about what they know about the players you care about. So I think, uh, you know, if should, yeah, I think before, you know, White Sox fans would complain about games not being on ESPN and such, but if uh, they get moved to ESPN and get local broadcasts taken away, I could see that being the case where uh, White Sox fans will want games back in a hurry just because uh, the the quality is not going to be there. And, and some would say that the quality is never there just because they tend to uh, you know, talk about a lot of different things that kind of turn into a national baseball show while the game is going on. But uh, in this case, I think it's just going to be a lot more disjointed. And I think, you know, no fault of their own in this case because they're, you know, adhering to social distancing measures, but I really don't know how they're going to do an effective job, especially against broadcasters who know their team, know what fans want to hear and, and, you know, know when the other's talking. I mean, like when, when it comes to road games, uh, even if, uh, you know, Stone and Benetti aren't traveling to them, they'll be in the same booth, uh, you know, seeing the same thing, looking at each other when they're talking and that's going to make a world of a difference. Well, that's what they did. For this game, they acted like it was a road game. Benetti and Stone were a guaranteed rate field calling the game hmm. when it was playing. I did not know that. How, how was that? Oh, they were in midseason form, Jim. You huh. couldn't tell until Jason pointed out that, by the way, we're calling this game a guaranteed rate field where we will be calling all games this season, no matter if they're home or away. So they, it was this opportunity for Benetti and Stone to practice calling a road game at Guarantee Ray Field and calling the game off the monitor, and it just felt like they were there. Like again, they were in midseason form with the broadcast, and that's that's a great sign because uh, in a sixty-game season, you, 
we're all so excited to watch baseball, but if you're going to have bad baseball broadcasts because ESPN's dealing with, you know, the technology gap here, or I should say the geographical gap that they're trying to make up with technology, uh, people are going to complain about the quality of broadcast that they're watching on TV and ESPN pays hundreds of millions of dollars for the rights to broadcast these games and everybody wants to watch these games and if the broadcast is bad uh, i i could see a, a pretty harsh reaction not just the espn's way but fox sports will have to figure this out as well as yeah. they'll have some national broadcasts yeah i'm thinking you know the the idea to broadcast games in a park even if they're not there i think it just makes a lot of sense because you're watching you know uh, shambi and, and and chipper and sutcliffe all like broadcasting in their offices or spare rooms or something like that you see bookshelves in the backgrounds and bobbleheads and trophies and whatnot but i mean if you're an ex-player and you don't have a like say with chipper you know an ex-player who doesn't have a whole lot of speaking experience um you know just with projecting a voice filling uh, filling audio space with your voice and nothing else. If you're talking in office, you're not going to be screaming or you're not going to be, you know, bellowing, you know, or it might feel like you're bellowing or, or shouting when you're not having to, but really you're just trying to match, uh, you know, what you'd be saying in the park when you're talking over crowd noise. Uh, that's what I think is, is lacking with these broadcasts. And I think the idea of just going to a broadcast booth and talking there. Uh, I imagine that adds something because at least you're talking out towards something. You're not having your voice bounce right back at you from the wall that's right in front of you or not having like a ring light you know, right in your face. Uh, I imagine that it just has a whole lot to do with just getting into a mode to where you're talking as loudly and as clearly as you usually do, even if there's really no practical use for it right, happening right in front of you. They're broadcasting baseball games like how you and I podcast. Yeah. Which, and I had the thought too, like, I don't want to be too critical because I'd be terrible at it too. I, you know, my voice is, is on the thinner side and it has the same uh, registers at the same frequency as fluorescent lights. Like it disappears. I feel like I'm yelling and it disappears 10 feet from me. So, I mean, I can, I can empathize, uh, but you know, it just the, I wouldn't be good at that. And so I, I think it's going to be a huge advantage to the White Sox to have two broadcasters who are used to, you know, they have these clear, um, you know, these clear uh, speaking voices and cadences that have been, you know, trained for years and in Stone's case, decades uh, with various partners in various situations. And I think uh, you're going to hear that quality play out, especially if you switch to other booths and might be less experienced or in the case of, you know, ESPN or Fox, just national broadcast trying to patch it together from various places. Yeah, just something that caught my eye and caught my attention, even watching games on MLB Network and how they're going to go about it as well, that if they're not in the same room, it took ESPN a learning curve, and not every KBO broadcast is great. But it will take, I mean, people are going to get hyped up for these games, Jim, that are on ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. And if the broadcasts are terrible, that's all you're going to read on Twitter. Not the play on the field, how bad the broadcast is. And I wish ESPN and soon Fox Sports luck on trying to make it work. But as far as the action on the field, the White Sox did win the exhibition game 7-3. to 
And the way that it started, uh, Kyle Hendricks, who's going to be the opening day starter for the Chicago Cubs, uh, made the start, and he was putting up zeros. But the White Sox hitters were making him work as Hendricks was pulled after 83 pitches, just pitching four and two-thirds innings. And before he left, Adam Engel hit a solo home run. That was an absolute bomb, almost left Wrigley Field. Uh, and the Cubs were up 2-1. to one. After Hendricks left, former Oakland A's prospect Gerald Cotton entered, and the White Sox hitters went to work. Yasmani Grandel had a two-run double that gave the White Sox the lead. Edwin Encarnacion had an RBI double. Luis Robert hit an RBI double into the Ivy. And Louis Garcia hit a triple because Ian Happ for the Cubs had a terrible route on the ball. All of these extra base hits, though, had an exit velocity greater than than 105 miles per hour. So these were not cheapies by any stretch of the imagination. And Jim, if there's one thing to take away from this exhibition game to be very excited about as a White Sox fan, it's this type of extra base power that's been added to the lineup and we haven't seen in years. Oh yeah, and you know you might uh, quibble about you know somebody like you know I guess getting those hits off somebody like Cotton who. You know, might not be a lock for any roster right now, but uh, you know, just the the depth of the lineup is what's appealing. Like you know, when, when we're watching these lineups and talking about these lineups for the last few years, kind of runs out of interesting bats by like the fifth spot, <laughs> if if they're so lucky some games. Uh, so to have you know, you're looking at the lineup. You have Anderson, Jimenez, Abreu, Grandal, Encarnacion, Robert, Robert in the sixth spot. And, you know, maybe that's where he should hit, you know, especially early on, like a guy like, you know, you watch his first at bat against uh, uh, Hendricks and Hendricks just uh, uh, chewed him up, made three great pitches uh, and and sent him back to the dugout. Second at bat, battled, uh, muscled an opposite field single and then off cotton, he had the uh, double in the ivy. So his at bats got progressively better over the course of the game. But I think there's going to be a learning curve there. So I think you're going to see him in the bottom half. But I mean, when you get to the sixth spot and you have Robert there and then, you know, afterwards, you know, they put Garcia and Cuthbert and Angle and such, but they, they can add to that. Certainly, especially when Mazzara is back, I think he was under the weather. So that messed with their lineup a little bit, but you're talking about like seven spots that are good. You throw in Madrigal at, at second, you're going to want to see him hit, And that's, pretty good you know Moncada, especially when he comes back those are nine hitters you're gonna want to see for one reason or another and uh yeah when you see them all hit 105 mile per hour rockets right in a row i think that's really the the dream scenario um you know even if it's against lesser pitchers and the good news is you get with the uh, royals and the tigers in the same division you're gonna see a lot of lesser pitchers exactly i'm glad you brought up that point because i could see you know some white Sox fans saying okay yeah it was great to see but you know, Khan's not a major leaguer anymore. And you're going to face those types of pitchers, though, this year, especially with 10 games against the Royals, 10 games against the Tigers, and their games against the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I think in a 60-game season where starting pitchers are going to have to ramp up for the first half of the season, Jim, that 5th, 6th, and 7th inning is going to be the danger zone for all Major League Baseball teams this year. You're going to Mm -hmm. see that first reliever who may be the fourth or fifth best guy out of the bullpen. And they're not going to have high quality stuff. And do you, do you as a team have the type of lineup to either punish a starting pitcher trying to get through the lineup a third time or punish that first reliever out of the bullpen? And as we saw in the exhibition game for the White Sox with a much deeper lineup, This is a lineup that could put fear into opposing teams in which they will make opposing managers sweat 
and having to decide if they got to have their starting pitcher try to get through the lineup a third time because they may have more confidence in that starter than the first reliever they want to bring out of the bullpen. And that's why I'm calling it the danger zone because starting pitchers could get lit up, uh, especially early in the season in these types of situations. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I think with the White Sox, I think the one danger with this lineup is, you know, Grandal aside, you can have some, and maybe Encarnacion too. I think there are two hitters who are pretty reliable at working deep counts and, and uh, you know, not getting, uh, you know, I guess not not being afraid to take a pitch and take a strike and, and work from behind. I think, you know, Mancata's somebody who had to be more aggressive last year to uh, to cut his strikeouts and, and, and kind of uh, flip the script on pitchers. So I think he's got more walks in him. But the rest of the lineup, I think, can be a bit over-aggressive, and there might be starts where a pitcher can get through five innings on 50 pitches, and they don't have to worry about the danger zone. So I think that's really my biggest concern with the lineup. But the nice thing about this lineup is that, you know, thinking about previous seasons where you had to wait sometimes two innings for the good part of the lineup to get back around, the nice thing about it is just this lineup can get started from anywhere. You know, there might be games where it just never gets started from anywhere because they just don't work counts well enough. But uh, I think there are going to be other games where we're going to have instant offense and even seeing like somebody like Adam Engel going deep. Uh, I, I talked a, l- a little bit about this on Twitter, uh, just saying that, uh, you know, it's nice to have a guy like Engel finally being a, being a spot where he doesn't have to be better than he is. Uh, like he's gotten so many starts uh, the last two years because he can at least catch the ball, but that just put a lot of stress on his bat. And, 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 you know, you had to like cross your fingers and hold out hope and just watch him go from game to game and see if he, uh, you know, can lay off the high fastball or stop popping it up. And, and, uh, you know, he's just never had the swing mechanics to make you feel great about that, but seeing him just make a, a spot start because Mazzara is under the weather and hit a homer to uh, left, and you know he had that kind of success late in the year last year. He's in a cool spot because like he can help the team even if he doesn't really hit because he's got the glove for a defensive replacement and pinch run. But if he can hit even just a little bit against lefties, uh, there is room for him. And and so to see him show up and provide a reminder of why he's not worth uh, or why you don't want to give up on him entirely, uh, that was cool to see too. Yeah, I mean he's going to be the White Sox fourth outfielder, and I think as a fourth outfielder, Jim. With his ability to play elite defense as far as get the ball, I mean, he may not be the best tracker, he may not be the best route runner, but his athleticism allows him to get to baseballs a lot of center fielders cannot get to. And if he's playing right field with Luis Robert playing in center field, Robert can you know, shade more over to left field so Aloy Jimenez doesn't have to <laughs> roam too far. And, you know, Engel could help out with this far as the, the right center gap. So there, it does give Rick Renteria some options because, uh, again, Nomar Mazzara, he's got a good arm, but defensively, uh, he's below average in right field. Like, I could see... Yeah, we, we've seen worse with Polka out true. there, but that's really... Yeah, so so it's like kind of like Melky Cabrera taking over for Vicieo. Yeah. You know, we've seen worse and his his competency on routine flies or just, you know, I guess slightly difficult fly balls will be appreciated, but that's right. about it. So in late game situations, yeah, I could see Adam Engel replace Nomar Mazzara and play right field, especially if the White Sox have like a three-run lead going into the ninth inning just to make sure that you got your best defensive team out there to try to hold on for the win. Uh, But 
yeah, I'm glad that Adam Engel had that moment, and I think he's definitely going to be on the 30-man roster, and I expect him to be on the 26-man roster to be that fourth outfielder. Pinch runner is probably where he's going to get most of his time. Uh, but hopefully, knock on wood, nobody gets sick, nobody gets hurt, and it does limit the amount of starts that Adam Engel will have for the White Sox in 2020. But I'm with you, Jim. There are... There are opportunities where Adam Engel can provide an impact for the White Sox. It's just that that opportunity for him to be starting every day is not a good idea. Yeah, I, I guess the one thing that would keep hope alive for me if I were him is just, you know, that uh, Jimenez and Mazzara have a history of getting banged up. So does Robert, especially if he, uh, uh, you know, slides, it keeps sliding like we've seen him slide in the interest squad games uh, that uh, you can always, you know, you always want to be ready because one of those guys can, especially Mazzara had the thumb issues. Uh, you know, Roberts had the thumb issues. Uh, you know, Eloy's had some, uh, you know, kind of strains and getting banged up from time to time. So I can see uh, the case where he's needed. And if he can just provide a little bit of something, you know, like, you know, hitting with him, I feel like a batting average is a good enough indicator of how the rest of his offense is. Uh, if he can hit 260, he'll be useful. Yeah, I think he'll be useful anyways for the White Sox. I just... Yeah, I'm thinking like I in mean, a spot start or if he has to like pitch in for a week. Okay, got it. I would still be wary having him to pitch in for a week uh, yeah. just based on past performances uh, because the White Sox have better options. But that's that's the good news. That's the good thing. They don't have to lean on Adam Engel to be an everyday starter. And Adam Engel can do what he does best. And I think what that is is being a very good fourth outfielder, uh, maybe a second-tier starter if the White Sox decide to move on or if he decides to move on he wants to be a starting outfielder, he'll probably join a rebuilding team in a couple of years and roam another team's outfield uh, while they struggle to win games. But... Not everybody is meant to be a star in the major leagues, but Adam Engel can still be effective for the White Sox, even in a short in 2020 season. Uh, a couple of things that did catch my eye, Jim. Ross Detweiler threw the ball well. He struck out four in two innings, uh, got seven swinging strikes on 35 pitches, which is, it's, that's a big thing because he was not getting a lot of swinging strikes last year. Uh, and my other, th- my other takeaway, Josh Fagley plays for the Chicago Cubs now. Yeah, I vaguely remembered that, and then I you know, didn't really have reason to remember it, so I didn't. Right, me either. And then I saw the catcher throwing the ball back uh, to Rex Brothers, and I'm like, I know that follow-through. Is that Josh Fagley? And I had to go to Google. I'm like, oh, my God, it's Josh Fagley right now playing against the White Sox. So old friend alert. But uh, those were just uh, the non-trivial two other things that caught my attention while watching the game. Obviously, the biggest is how the lineup performed. Uh, but for you, Jim, is there any other takeaways that you are uh, jotting down as far as in your notebook after the first exhibition game? Well, I think the biggest one to me, at least after that that onslaught of line drives that uh, the yeah this during the six run inning was that Carson Fulmer still looks like Carson Fulmer, like some some great pitches in some some swinging strikes and some uh, bursts of effectiveness during not good innings. Uh, he, uh, you know, came in and he just needed to throw strikes and he didn't walk three batters and Rick Renteria came out and he's wearing, Renteria is wearing a mask. So you can't exactly see what he's saying or he can't read lips. And I feel bad for John boy, because I think his job's gonna be a lot harder this year trying to get uh, clips from arguments and conversations because uh, a lot of managers will have the luxury and, and that might be one reason they wear a mask is to be able to say things that uh, people can't pick up. But 
that case, he goes to the mound and he, uh, you know, yanks Fulmer. And I think like the body language was encouraging, but he might have said, who knows what he said. But then Cody Hoyer comes in and just gets four up, four down, throws strikes, makes easy work of it. White Sox go home. And that's the one thing I wonder, like, you know, when it comes to this kind of situation where you have open auditions for spots and you, you're going to have innings like that where you just need to throw strikes and go home and get the game over with. If there are, if there is like a, a point uh, counting system and Renteria's head saying like, uh, this guy just had, a, oh, he needed the strikes in this one game and he couldn't throw them. Like there, there's no win and loss uh, on his record. You know, the ERA doesn't count. There's no reason for him not to attack the hitters and he couldn't. And the same thing I wonder about with Chase Fry too. And I think, you know, they're kind of in the same boat where they just are physically unable to commit to the strike zone, even when the situation says, uh, this is all you have to do. And, uh, I, you know, based on his situation and, and being out of options, I can see him making the 30 man roster, but, uh, as that gets whittled down, I don't know where they're going to be opportunities for him, especially if guys with bigger arms like Hoyer can throw strikes without fear. Yeah, and the velocity is an issue. According to Baseball Savant, Carson Fulmer was sitting 89 to 91 miles per hour with his fastball. Yeah. Like, I'm, we're, we are approaching toast territory. Like, when he was pitching for Vanderbilt, he was 95 to 97. Now, as a starter, as a starter now he's down to 89, 91 out of the bullpen. That's after driveline, too. Right. Like, he's tried to make the the big adjustments with this training. And it's not, I don't think it's for a lack of work ethic either, or, or trying to figure it out. It's just, uh, yeah, just it, it's, I'm guessing that's the reason why he's not confident attacking the zone, but I mean, this isn't a way for him to live either. So, right. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for Carson Fulmer, but right now after that performance against the Cubs, I, I don't know how anyone can confidently say, yeah, he's on the opening day roster. I just, I think you got better tools, especially if this is a go year, you're expecting to compete. I think you got better pitchers in tow uh, that will throw the ball better than Carson Fulmer. Like the only time you want Carson Fulmer to throw in a game is if you're down by five going into the eighth inning. But even then, that's why, that's why I think this situation was important because this is, you know, this is kind of the equivalent, you know, an exhibition game when you have a four run lead that throw strikes until you get in trouble and he didn't. And uh, that's kind of the same thing with a, you know, five run deficit, same thing, just throw strikes. That's all we need for you right now. We'll adjust later if, uh, if it's not working for you and he couldn't do it. Well, let's talk something about a little bit more positive than Carson Fulmer's future with the White Sox. And let's talk about Luis Robert, ton of hype and his last inter-squad game. Uh, he hit some monster home runs. I mean, off the shrubbery. Uh, in center field, and then almost to the concourse in left field, uh, landed in the last row, uh, just outside of the uh, the left field foul pole. Just monster home runs from Luis Robert. And in the exhibition game, uh, I you know the Chicago Cubs Twitter account tried to do some trolling on Luis Robert early as he struck out against Hendricks in his first at bat. His second at-bat, I have to say that was a good at-bat for Robert because he did a good job laying off a high fastball uh, with two strikes, and then he was able to to fight off another high fastball for a Kansas City special single. Uh, but he got he later got caught stealing by Wilson Contreras, which Contreras still has a big arm behind home plate, and, and the Cubs' Twitter account had fun with that. And then Luis Robert in his third at-bat hit a 403rd-foot double off the center field wall, and Cubs' Twitter got very quiet. 
<laughs> but, uh, you know, Jim, again, the, the, the monster home runs in the last intra-squad game, I mean, you got MLB's Twitter account tweeting them out. Every, as far as broadcaster, is also tweeting this out. And then, you know, the, the legend of him falling down and still hitting a home run. And the exhibition game here tonight, I'm sure this is something that ESPN was hyping up as well as here is the next future star of the game. Here is Luis Robert. We're getting a chance to see him with this type of hype in the last few days. Is this going to be taking the excitement that you have for the 2020 opening day to the stratosphere? Uh, Well, I think given my personality style, I think it makes me a little bit reluctant to try to give into it uh, and try to guard against it. But yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed, uh, yeah, I wrote about this a little bit on, on Sunday evening, just thinking about it and thinking about how we've watched these inter-squad games and you have no data for what's going on. You're just watching. You're just watching what your eyes tell you. Uh, you're not checking StatCast or PitchFX and, you know, they're not reading, um, you know, exit velocities on the broadcast. Nobody really knows, uh, you know, pitch velocities you don't really know. You're just kind of watching. And and it took me back to an article that James Fegan wrote at The Athletic talking to Miley broadcasters about, you know, their experience watching Robert coming up, coming up and just being the uh, the biggest, baddest player on the field. And, and that just jumping out to them immediately and all the things that he did that they haven't seen other players do. And that was fun. And that, and it was just, uh, kind of reminds me of, you know, watching and writing about the Sox in like 2006, 2007, before pitch FX came out and kind of revolutionized the way we, uh, you know, had hard data, you know, pitch to pitch to know exactly what, uh, pitchers were throwing and what hitters were doing with it. And you're just uh, trying to tell a, you know, tell a story based on what's happening. And that's fun. And and I really enjoy that. And, um, you know, the, the Homer that almost reached the concourse and trying to figure out how far it went. And uh, that, that's kind of situation where you just step back and say like, eh, does it really matter how far it went? If you're just impressed, <laughs> like, is it just a, sometimes just uh fun just to uh, say, wow, that was faster than usual and not check it because this isn't important. It's baseball. It's entertainment. Uh, he's entertaining us. Great. And so, uh, I, you know, as we go into this era where, uh, you know, now he's with the white Sox and the games are recorded and everything's measured and such, I hope it doesn't make him more human. I think there will be, you know, moments that make him human. There'll be, uh, you know, at bats like the one against Hendricks, the first time up where somebody works him over and uses his aggressiveness against him. And that's fine. And then you just hope for that. You know, you know, maybe two at bats will look overmatched and you just hope for the one that, uh, that makes you think, okay, he's, he's figured out. He's not hurting. He's not, uh, he's not completely thrown for a loop. He'll figure out eventually. Uh, he's keeping his head above water. I think that's really what I'm hoping for. And I think the talent is such that he's just going to do some cool things along the way. And really hoping that's the case because, uh, uh, yeah, I guess in the season like this where so many things are strange, I won't hold it against him if he doesn't, but uh, it would be just it's a lot of fun if uh, a player didn't need like a, like we saw with Mankata and Anderson and so forth, like these long adjustment periods to be just uh, must watch TV. The, another bad thing about 2020 is that Luis Robert misses the opportunity of in another reality where he'd be trotted out on opening day in late March in front of a sold-out crowd and White Sox fans getting the opportunity to cheer for the first time to see Luis Robert play for the Chicago White Sox in Chicago. Like he's going to be he's going to miss that opportunity that 
Aloy Jimenez had and Yohan Mikata. I mean, all, you know, Kopech. I mean, I was at the Kopech game. That was a huge applause for him coming out of the bullpen. Uh, you know, they all got that moment and that opportunity uh, to be in front of a packed house and have White Sox fans voice their excitement uh, as they entered the field. Luis Roberts not going to get that. And I feel like if he has a season we think he could have in 2020, he might get the loudest applause for the 2021 opening day. Uh, but I think, again, with the offseason the White Sox have had, Jim, adding these veterans and the fact that we're seeing another season of Makata and Anderson and Jimenez, uh, along with the veterans that they have in Grandal and Encarnacion and Abreu, if Robert can bottle up what he has done these last few days, and it doesn't matter who is pitching against him, if he can continue to have these moments early in the 2020 season, he may be the one player that makes everyone believe that, yes, the White Sox can contend for the division in 2020. Are you calling him the fulcrum? Well, we always bring this up, right? And I, I think he's a good candidate. I really do. I think Mikata's health situation, though, might be a better fulcrum. But if you want to count Luis Robert as the fulcrum of the 2020 White Sox, I will not argue against you with that. Hmm. I could. He's a better fulcrum than Avisil Garcia. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you could say better or worse just because you have to allow him to have rookie struggles. I will say the the one benefit of this season, you know, he doesn't get to make his uh, debut in, in, at home in front of a full house. On the other hand, uh, he gets to make his debut in uh, Chicago summer. And now Chicago Spring. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> He's not wearing the boxing gloves and the balaclava <laughs> and uh, seeing his breath for the first time. Yeah, it, it could be 90 degrees on opening day night uh, in Chicago for Luis Robert instead of 40 degrees. <laughs> yep. So so that's on his side. But yeah, I, I would say like if I'm thinking fulcrum and I'm, I'm, and I'm limiting it to players who have a certain... Um, you know, have a track record in the majors at least, but people are hoping more. I would think mine might be, I think the Moncada being healthy, that's probably the best one just because, or you know, being healthy and fully operational. I think he's healthy. Just a matter of if he can knock the rust off and doesn't have any kind of, uh, you know, leg related injuries from trying to get back up to speed too quickly. But, uh, I think the, uh, one I might say otherwise is Nomar Mazzaro being hmm. good, hmm. you know, versus below average. Yeah. Or Eloy. I think Eloy's another one. If he's if he picks up where he you know, if he starts the season how he finished last year and is the monster hitter the White Sox fans hope they would would have seen the entire year, then yeah, that's a that's a force the White Sox didn't have last year. That's a good point. So maybe I'll say Eloy. Okay. Yeah, the, the Mazzara even if Mazzara is quote unquote good. Mazzara Good is someone that hits 10 to 12 home home runs this year in a 60-game season. And he might be one and a half to two war, which in a 60-game season is pretty good. Luis Robert, if he continues to play at this level with his type of defense, he could be three to four war. And then we're talking about not only is he the American League Rookie of the Year, but now he might be in the top five for American League MVP. Like, it's just a... Totally different talent level between Luis Robert and Noma Mazzara, considering the fulcrum. 
But yeah, Aloy Jimenez, if he's hitting 20 plus home runs for the White Sox in a 60 game season, that is a drastic boost to their chances of contending. I think ultimately, though, Jim, I'm going to settle on Yoan Mikata. Is Yoan Mikata ready to play baseball in 2020? Because if he's not, then the White Sox have a huge hole that they need to address. And uh, that makes it for a great segue, which we are going to talk about Yoan Mikata and the plan for him to return to the White Sox lineup. He might return in the next couple of days in one of the last two exhibition games, either against the Cubs or the Milwaukee Brewers before opening day. But does that mean that he's going to be ready for opening day? And if he's not, who's going to start at third and who's going to be the White Sox fifth starter in the starting rotation and who's going to start second base and who's going to make the 30 man roster. We're going to try to answer all these questions next after a quick break for a word from our sponsors. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. And as we were speaking about before the break, let's talk about Yoan Mikata and his availability for opening day. Let's also try to answer the questions on who's going to be the fifth starter for the Chicago White Sox, who's going to start at second base, and who should make the back end of the 30-man roster. And Jim, you know, we again, we had, I thought, a really good conversation about Yoan Mikata being the fulcrum for the 2020 White Sox season. But it does sound like Rick Renteria, who's been holding out Mikata from the intra-squad scrimmages, and he held him out for the first exhibition game, thinks that Mikata will be ready to go to play either both or one of the last two exhibition games before opening day. And from my perspective, Jim, it'd be great if he could play an exhibition game before opening day. That would give me a little bit more confidence that he's ready to go. But I just feel at this moment that you're not going to get 100% Yohan Mikata on opening day. And I wonder if that opens up the possibility, and we have seen this before from Mikata, where another injury comes along and then he has to spend more time on the injured list. Yeah, that's the great reservation. I think uh, that's what James Fegan said. You know, when we last talked to him about just the emphasis on trying to maintain flexibility and, 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 uh, you know, in his legs and, and avoid those hamstring issues and, and what this does to it. Uh, it would be nice to, you know, have him at least get some DH appearances. And, it's, you know, it's nice that they're playing these exhibition games against teams that aren't them. Uh, but on the other hand, I wish that he had some intra squad games just to be able to have those nice flexible roster rules and uh, be able to get multiple at bats and maybe appear at uh, third base for a couple innings, then DH and just uh, get reps at the plate, see pitches from different pitchers and catch up there without having to run the bases too much. Uh, maybe get a pinch runner for him if he reaches that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, it might be Rick Renteria's toughest job early on is just trying to figure out exactly how much Mankata can offer, uh, whether, you know, a rusty Mankata is better than, like, say, Chesler Cuthbert or Larry Garcia or whoever they want to throw out there uh, in his place. And, uh, you know, whether there's any injury concern, um, 
because, you know, if they miss Moncadas for, say, like the first week of the season while he gets tuned up somewhere else, like maybe Schaumburg or, or what have you, then, uh, you know, is that better than, say, putting him out there and he's batting 200 with a 35% strikeout rate and then he gets hurt? <laughs> is, that the, is that the two outcomes uh, that are most likely in this case? I, I would hope that's not the case, but, uh, you know, given his history and his uh, propensity to get these minor strains and pulls and such that uh, take him out of lineup for a week at a time. You never know. Right. And that, again, that's my concern. I mean, if he can play one of these exhibition games and he looks normal ish, uh, then obviously it'd be better if he is on the opening day lineup, right? Against Jose Barrios, uh and the twins. Cause they need these wins. They need every win they can get against the Minnesota twins this year. Uh, if the White Sox are going to contend for the division title. And, of course, they go to Cleveland after the weekend series against Minnesota. Uh, so the first six games of the season, one-tenth of the season, uh, you know, the White Sox would love to have Yohan Mikata ready to go. Uh, and, and hopefully he he does look like he's physically ready and uh, he's caught up to speed with as far as the batting cage work and uh, the infield practice work. But we really do need to see Yohan Mikata in one of these two exhibition games. Because if for XYZ reason, Jim, Mikata cannot play in any of these two exhibition games, I really doubt that he's going to be ready for opening day. And I'm assuming at this point that if Mikata cannot go, it's Chesler Cuthbert starting in his place at third base, Jim. I would think so based on... Yeah, I think the only thing that would maybe change my mind is if... Nick Madrigal makes the opening day roster, and it seems like, based on Renteria's cagey reply, that uh, he's not willing to, uh, or he wants to avoid that question and maybe just delay it till the very end and and then just give a quick answer and not spend too much time defending it. But uh, Madrigal did make the push for it. Uh, He did make the, he, he said something to the effect of that he wants this more than anything he's wanted in his life to be a part of this team. And so he's making the emotional appeal that kind of we saw from Jose Abreu, who, uh, when he wanted to be re-signed, just making the emotional plea, which I think everybody can understand. Uh, And and that's probably the best roster to me is because I'm not really impressed with Cuthbert at the plate. And I don't think he's that good of a third baseman to where you're getting like that. Yeah. You're, you're getting like, say Adam Engel in center. If you had to play with him for a couple days there, at least you're getting like good defense. I don't think Cuthbert's a good third baseman i think he's all right you know maybe above average in small samples and uh but i don't think he's great he's on a he's on amazing to the point where you can you know get by with some games just by with a play he makes that others can't so i think i'd rather say larry there and magical at uh, second and and go that way but my guess is with the way they're approaching it and how renter has been uh, reluctant to say anything about magical that they are going to gain the service time well, that is a good way of going to the next question of who should start at second base for the White Sox on opening day uh, between Nick Madrigal, Lurie Garcia, and Denny Mendick, Jim. Yeah, I mean, I like Madrigal. I like the way he's, uh, you know, his plate appearances are good. He's hit some nice firm line drives, mostly to the right side, but he's, you know, he, he's tagging the ball. And I know he drove Lucas Giolito nuts. And uh, he had the moment uh, in the intra-squad game where, he tried beating out a uh, a chopper, and he was out by a step, but he pointed to the ump to say that as if Nick, uh, Andrew Vaughn's uh, foot was off the bag in an intra-squad game. Like, just, he's, he's uh, you know, the, yeah, 
the the guy who was uh, like uh, really upset about losing a spring training game that also came over to inter-squad in which he wanted to get on base and wanted to maximize every opportunity there too. And I think that uh, dynamic is fascinating and um, I'm, I'm interested to see, see how it plays out. He doesn't look overwhelmed to the plate, doesn't look overmatched. I think Larry is, you know, I'd like to see Larry at third because I still think he can do more at the plate than Cuthbert can. And I don't think there's that uh, big a defensive gap there. Uh, to where I would feel like there's any difference there. So um, that would seem to be the best infield for me if Mancata is out to go around the horn, Garcia, Anderson, Madrigal, Abreu. I'm with you. I think Nick Madrigal should be the opening day starting second baseman for the Chicago White Sox. I think that he has dem- he's looked different in the summer camp. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> Sancho Bob? Oh, yeah. Just step on a rake and hit me in the face after saying that. Uh, He looked better in the summer than he looked in spring training. And I think defensively, they're going to need as much help as possible, especially now that you you have a ground ball starting pitcher in Dallas Keuchel, that these guys are going to get a lot more work. And if you're not 100% confident that Chesler Cuthbert is going to make every defensive play, and he didn't tonight... Uh, against the Cubs, he had a slow chopper that he struggled to get the ball out of the glove, and Javier Baez, I think, was the one that hit it and was able to reach on base. Uh, if you're not confident that Cuthbert can make every play, then I think you go with Magical at second, and if you if they like Danny Mendick better than at third than Lurie Garcia, then have Mendick start at third base until Mikata's ready. Again, this is the situation if Mankata is not up to speed at the level that the White Sox are comfortable trotting him out on opening day. If they are comfortable having Mankata start at third base on opening day, then you got these three. I think all three make the 30-man roster. Well, maybe not, actually, thinking about it. If Mankata could play on opening day, Jim, is that bad news for Magical? I would say so because just because, you know, if they want to get the extra year of service time, yeah. then that would be the case where just, you know, they, I don't, well, the thing was with the 30 man roster and having no meaningful games in the minor leagues this year, I, I just wonder what the rationale would be. Right. Like they're not going to say like, oh, he's getting valuable experience in Schaumburg in make-believe games that we're just trying to keep guys warm with. And I don't think you can sell me on the argument of, well, in the summer we thought Danny Mendick looked better than Nick Madrigal. Like, yeah. no. <laughs> no, he did not. This is the this is the negative thing about broadcasting these intra-squad games. We get an opportunity to watch them. <laughs> make make <laughs> informed opinions where we would just have to take your word for it uh, if you weren't broadcasting the inter squad games, where yeah, if you if we couldn't watch the inter squad games, we just had to lean on uh, Twitter highlights from the uh, the beat reporters, then maybe you can make that case, and we would have to believe it. But no, I, I think out of the three, Nick Magicals looked the best, and he looks the most ready. And I'll keep I'll keep making this point. If you believe that Nick Magical is going to be the White Sox starting second baseman. In 2021 and beyond, I think he needs these 60 games in 2020 to prove it. Yeah, and and with you know each game being so important, especially against divisional rivals, uh, you only have an early series against the Twins, and uh, you know basically every 
well, every game is kind of like almost three games. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think it's quite that way to where like losing, uh, getting swept is a nine game losing streak. But depending on how it works out in the standings, it kind of can be. You, you kind of have to treat it like that in order to have perspective and, and make sure you're maximizing all your opportunities as, as reasonably possible that uh, starting Madrigal opening day seems to be the best one. I mean, I can see, I think Larry's a a good ball player. Like in, in, in I don't think he's uh, above average at any one thing, but uh, maybe speed. But when it comes to just his package and the way he plays the game, I, I think he's a good ball player. And I think if Renteria trusted him, say for a game or a start or a series against a team more than Madrigal, I could see it. You know, so I, I think there will be opportunities for Garcia there. And if, if you're talking about just like one game, then I don't think it matters who plays that game between Larry and Magical. But I think when it comes to just the big picture and having your best roster available at the start of the season against divisional opponents, then yeah, just have Magical there. I mean, uh, if they want to extend him, you know, if, if they're afraid of losing him, they found ways to extend guys. And it might cost them a little bit more than it did, uh, you know, because you don't have the the big leverage, but if you're offering mm-hmm. enough money, that's leverage enough. Yeah, I guess if they are going to play the service time game with Magical, then I'm assuming Lurie Garcia is going to be the opening day second baseman. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, the lineup is, especially if Moncada's back, the lineup's deep enough to where if Lurie is like your... Number nine? Yeah, number nine or your worst regular, uh, that's pretty good. Right. And again, he had a that triple, even though Ian Happ played it terribly... Uh, was 105 exit velocity. So yeah, he can sting the ball occasionally. I mean, the yes. Cuthbert, like I don't see him as unless Jose Quintana's pitching. <laughs> I don't see him, uh, you know, hit the ball as hard. You know, and I don't see the quality of contact there that makes me think like he's going to stand out for a week or so while a better player is being kept down. All right, let's go on the pitching side, and I, I'm still struggling to answer this question. So for the White Sox starting rotation, Lucas Giolito is going to be the opening day starting pitcher. Worst kept secret ever. Uh, Dallas Keuchel uh, more than likely is going to follow Giolito. And then I'm assuming it's going to be Cease and then Lopez. So Jim, who is the fifth starter for the White Sox? Carlos Rodon or Gio Gonzalez? I think I like Gio Gonzalez more at this point. Uh Reason being is that, you know, Rodon's given, uh, at least in the two intra-squad games I saw, or at least the, the last two he pitched in, like four homers in limited time. And one of them was Luis Robert falling on his butt while he did it. And, you know, part of it's like Robert's really impressive. But, you know, when he hit that homer, my, one of the things in the back of my head was, if he wasn't guessing fastball and he still pulled it while falling, being off balance and had enough on to get it in four rows deep in the seats... Does that mean Rodon's fastball is missing that much? And then he gave up three homers in his next time out and he couldn't get through an inning. Like they had to cut an inning short with inter-squad uh, chicanery in order to uh, you know keep it to a reasonable amount of pitches in a frame. I wonder how much his stuff is lacking right now. Yeah, I in the last inter-squad game that he pitched, I tweeted out that I understand why they don't have the as far as the pitch readings on the broadcast, as far as what his fastball was coming in, but that fastball velocity looks off Jim. Mm-hmm. Cause the location yeah. wasn't bad uh, on it, some of the ones he was given uh, on some of the hard hit balls. It wasn't terrible. Right. But you know, him telling the media, yeah, I hit 95 miles per hour. I, 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 I don't know, man, maybe, maybe my eyes are terrible, 
But just from like a scouting perspective, it looked like he was sitting 90 to 92. And when you're throwing 90 to 92 mile per hour fastballs against these types of hitters, yeah, you're going to get crushed. You're going to get crushed. The slider looks good. Mm -hmm. I'd say his changeup looks good. But I'm with you. Like until we, maybe he pitches in one of the exhibition games, and I hope so, because then we're going to get baseball savant. And then we're going to know the answer of where Rodon's velocity is sitting. And if he can get to 94, 95, I think he's a much more effective pitcher. And if he was throwing 94 to 95, these inter-squad scrimmages, well then, yeah, these, uh, these hitters for the White Sox, they, they, they know Carlos Rodon well, uh, and maybe they are really ready to go for opening day. But something tells me that the, the eye test doesn't match as far as that reading, uh, as far as 95. Yeah, there, there's one weird at bats. I don't know if you saw it when Grandal was at the plate while Rodon was pitching. And I think he got ahead, or Grandal got ahead 3-0, and then he let two fastballs go by, and he was like nodding, mm-hmm. kind of like he would have been if he were squatting behind the plate. Like, you know, kind of in an encouraging way and saying, you know, good pitch, good And he let like two hittable fastballs go by 3-0. Yeah, I mean, you don't probably swing at that one. 3-1, he probably should have ripped it, but he didn't. And then he swung over a slider at strike three, and he kind of nodded and you know, tipped right. his cap and almost seemed like he was trying to help him along. Like it wasn't his best or most aggressive effort because he's also thinking as a catcher who's trying to help his pitcher out. And that struck me as like, Ooh, that's, I wonder if that's, you know, if that was Grandal telling, you know, not, you know, he wasn't saying, Hey Jim, look at this, but just like giving a cue to, you know, maybe people on the outside or, or maybe you know, not knowing he was saying like, Oh, we need two catchers right now to try to help him out. And, uh, you know, let him know that, uh, you know, his stuff will eventually come around. He just has to stick with it or something. Yeah. I think, I thought that was a moment that Grandal was just being a really good teammate and, and being supportive. But if Grand, if, if Rodon doesn't have his velocity, Gio Gonzalez doesn't have velocity either. Like, he, he's he got to rely on his changeup heavily. And just looking at the, his entire career, Gonzalez has a walk issue. Like, this isn't a great situation right now for the White Sox. I mean, for their number five starter. However, every team in Major League Baseball is struggling to find a reliable fifth starter. Uh, so the White Sox are still in a pretty good position here. But you're going to go with Gio Gonzalez as the fifth starter. I think I think I would go with Rodon only because with Gonzalez, I'm concerned about the shoulder, and he has more experience pitching out of the bullpen as far as that transition. And I, I that's where I would kind of have Gonzalez. I, I would be limiting Gonzalez to two to three innings to start the season and see how the shoulder holds up. Yeah, I could see that. I think I just, you know, you mentioned the walk issue, but I think he's somebody at this point in his career, he's gotten comfortable walking guys. Like he's, uh, he can do it or that's his mode of pitching in, in, in the second half of his career. And you're know, working with Grandal in Milwaukee. I think Grandall encouraged that to a certain degree, or at least figured out how to work with it and how to nibble. And I think he threw the lowest percentage of strikes or pitches in the zone of any starter with 70 innings when I was looking it up. Uh, Dallas Keuchel was second, so that's another reason why they have Grandall. Just two guys who live outside the zone and try to get hitters to swing over stuff. And he's worked that way. I mean, I think the shoulder would probably be the bigger argument for... uh, 
limiting Gonzalez in his innings, but I think either way, you know, their initial starts, I'd hope for like three to four good innings and have a have a second pitcher in mind to get through the sixth. And I wouldn't have both of those guys on the same day just because they're both lefties. Yeah, that's a good point. I would not team them up by any stretch. But, you know, being in swing, man, I mean, if you, if Ronaldo Lopez struggles and he can only give you three or four innings, then that's where I kind of see the role of Gonzalez. All right, Gonzalez, can you get to the seventh inning and then hand the ball off to, like, Steve Ciszek or Aaron Bummer uh, in those types of tricky situations? Again, for me... If I, I just I guess Jim I don't trust Gonzalez being able to throw five innings right now. Yeah, I guess uh, yeah I would counter or just by saying like okay only throw three for the first week see how you bounce back and five days later. But just something about Rodon stuff and the way White Sox maybe White Sox hitters have just seen him a lot or maybe it's a good lineup and they're punishing him the way they'll punish other pitchers and lesser teams. Uh, like, say, uh, 40% of the AL Central and and the Pirates really won't put up that much of a fight. But just on the first uh, starts I've seen from them both, it seems like Gonzalez is more himself. I would I would agree with that, yes. What, what we have seen from Gio Gonzalez is Gio Gonzalez. What we have seen from Carlos Rodon, the fastball is lacking. I, I would agree with you on that, Jim. So while we, we disagree, though, as far as who the fifth starter should be for the White Sox. When it comes to the back end of the 30-man roster, again, the White Sox will have 30 players on the roster for the first couple of weeks, then the second two weeks of the season, uh, which would be weeks three and four in the schedule. They'll be trimmed down to 28. And then after the first month of the season, rosters will go back to normal to 26 players. But for the 30-man roster, who is someone... That would is a name that would surprise White Sox fans that you do think will make the 30 man roster. Huh? Uh, it's at first I thought Nicky Delmonico had a really good shot to make it just because we know how much they love him. But every at bat I've seen Delmonico have, it seems, yeah, it hasn't been everyone, but it seems like he's had to face lefties the entire uh, training camp. He just hasn't really been able to get good swings. And so his bats have been unimpressive the couple times he's faced right-handed pitchers he's been fine but uh they just haven't given him those looks i think your mean mercedes is intriguing i do like uh cody hoyer um as somebody who can contribute right now i'm not sure if he qualifies as a surprise because he's been a fast riser but i think he's just you know watching him pitch in the spring and also now it doesn't seem like there's any fear in him and uh, you can't say that about other pitchers like Carson Fulmer and Jace Fry in particular. Uh, the, and and when you're trying to fill out the rest of the bullpen, I don't know if anybody else, uh, if you want to add them to the roster, if you want to uh, you know, add, add them 40 man such over them, or if you want to really waste time uh, when they can't give you like decent medium leverage innings. Uh, it seems to be, I think, my furthest. A guy who I would say like in the 162 game season might show up in May or June. I think he has a good shot to break uh, break camp with the White Sox now. I like that pick. I like the Cody Hoover pick. Uh, another arm, uh, well, Ian Hamilton might make the team because your 30-man roster, obviously you have to use your 40-man roster. And the White Sox 40-man roster is currently at 39 players. Ian Hamilton is on the 40-man roster. So 
using that line of logic, Jim, I wonder if Hamilton finds a way to be on the 30 man roster when maybe we weren't counting on him to be on the roster, but another, he's got such a big arm. What do you think about Tyron Guerrero? Uh, I don't, yeah, I haven't seen enough of him to, uh, I've seen more of Hoyer than I've seen of Guerrero. So that's why you know that name jumps out to me. But from what I've seen, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, I guess there are some similarities between Jimmy Cordero and his history of just big fastball. What else do you have in this case? You know, Guerrero has a slider that, you know, the location comes and goes, but he's been successful enough to last in bullpens on second division teams. So he's, it's not the, it's not a ridiculous suggestion by any means. Uh, just requires that kind of like a Jimmy Cordero, like faith to where the white Sox have unlocked a key. And from what I've seen, he doesn't look overmatched or overwhelmed and, and has some potential, uh, but just haven't seen enough of it to where I would give him the nod over Hoyer, but possible. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I would go with Hoyer over Guerrero. But those were those were my other arms that I don't think White Sox fans are thinking about will make the 30-man roster. But I could see one of those three, Hamilton, Guerrero, or Hoyer, make the 30-man roster, which would surprise, right? It would surprise White Sox fans. Like, oh, I didn't think uh, they would make it on their roster. Uh, and even though he threw really well tonight at Wrigley Field with Jimmy Lambert, and he, you know he's got an opportunity to pitch even in the intra squad games as well. Same thing with Dane Dunning. Uh, I'm expecting Dane Dunning, and Jimmy Lambert to continue throwing in Schaumburg during the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they seem to be more in line of just let them get tuned up, let them get fully healthy and back and active from Tommy John surgery, and then like say come. Second half of August, first half of September, if emergency strikes and they look as good as anybody, then uh, what the hell, give them reps. Right. Uh, but no, I'm also looking at roster resource on fangraphs.com at their projected 30 man. And they got Carson Fulmer, the 30 man roster. And kind of circling back to our conversation earlier in the show, Jim, I, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a good idea. I can see him making the 30 man, but then when it comes down to 28, two weeks He's in. Gone. Yeah, I mean, unless the uh, unless the situation with team health is that dire, but I don't think so. I think there are other guys who can make better use of that time. And given that other teams are whittling down their rosters, I don't know if any, you know, all teams are going to have the same uh, considerations the White Sox have in which they're whittling down their active roster, but trying to keep their 40-man stocked with enough guys that I don't know if he's going to be that compelling to other teams. I agree with you there. I mean... I would just, if you had to ask me who would you rather have the 30-man roster, Cody Hewer or Carson Fulmer, I think I have to go, I have to go not Fulmer. I think that's my answer. Pick anyone, not Fulmer. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like you're you're voting against somebody more than voting for him. No, I I like Hoyer a lot. Just didn't, you know, I think it's the, Throw strikes until they make you can you know make you think otherwise, and that's something Fulmer just hasn't been able to do. Um, he's, he's he gets himself in trouble before other teams do in a lot of cases, and given where he is in his major league career and the kind of innings he's going to be expected to cover, that's really the worst thing you can be. Right. Well. Those are our answers on the remaining roster questions for the Chicago White Sox. Again, we'll see on how it all shakes up. I'm sure we're going to get final answers after the exhibition game against the Milwaukee Brewers, which is going to be on 
this upcoming Wednesday, July 22nd. So we'll probably get final rosters on July 23rd, which is opening night for Major League Baseball with the Washington Nationals and the New York Yankees kicking off the 2020 season. Garrett Cole against Max Scherzer. That will be a fun game, but we'll we'll get the final answers as far as who will be on the White Sox 30-man roster later this week before we have our next podcast episode, uh, which is going to be Friday morning uh, to launch opening day and the 2020 regular season. But coming up after the break, you guys had some excellent questions for us in P.O. Sox that we'll be answering next on the Sox Machine Podcast. IBM Cloud offers millions of different server configurations with 20 terabytes of bandwidth cost-free. Get the compute power you need and deploy on demand, but at prices set for smart cost management. Visit ibm.biz slash bare metal servers to customize your server today. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to us at Sox Machine or helping support the site and show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And Jim, our first question comes from one of our Patreon supporters, Mark Sambor. And Mark is asking, how will you be assessing the performance of Rick Renteria in this experimental season, how much time is left on his contract and what scenarios would have to take place for Renteria to either have his contract extended or terminated? Well, I don't think anybody knows how many years Renteria has left on his contract because he was extended in the middle of the night when nobody knew and the White Sox didn't reveal it. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I've never seen the terms come out. I, I would assume he has at least two years left. So, you know, I don't think there's any time pressure there. Uh, when it comes to this season, I think the job of the manager is going to be very, very difficult. And unlike any other season they've had, I think, you know, if they're kind of in charge of the roster, but they're also in charge basically of making sure, you know, as best they can, that players adhere to the team health protocols and that space is minded in the dugouts and in training thing, you know, training facilities and such. I mean, the coaching staff need a lot of eyes on, on people, a lot of self-policing among players, but that's really their chief, uh, you know, one of their chief goals this year is to keep everybody as safe as possible, best they can. So it's like a, they're doing managing, like they're, they're doing general managing on top of team or game managing, which I don't think they've ever been expected to do. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, especially like say if there are some complications from coronavirus, like, you know, with Yoyo Makata, he didn't want to reveal it. Uh, he didn't give the team permission to disclose it. He did later, but, uh, you know, Renteria had talk around it. There could be cases where he has to try to talk around it or explain why a player isn't there. Or, you know, even if it's not the players, you know, issue, maybe like the players, wife or kid has it and tests positives and they don't want to talk about, you know, they don't want to, uh, to bring family into it. So they have to be very delicate about how they phrase things. And, uh, you know, we've already seen like in previous years when he doesn't want to use a reliever and he can't, you know, come out and say like, this guy's unavailable for this game. And then you second guess him. I think there are going to be some cases where managers are going to be second guessed for reasons that are completely beyond their control, or they have the player's health or well being in mind, or even like, uh, mental space in mind, you know, if there's some, you know, anxiety or stress 
uh, from off field bleeding into the proceedings. So uh, I think really when it comes to his job, I think, you know, there are some basic ones like, you know, don't bunt and put, uh, you know, don't leave starters in too long and T-top and all that. But, uh, you know, this lineup doesn't look like it's conducive to unnecessary bunts. So I'm expecting that to happen less. So then when you get down to it, I think it's really a matter of just having, you know, supporting his players uh, in a very uncertain season. I think this is going to be a case where you don't want to doghouse guys because you don't know what they're dealing with. And, you know, even in some cases, they might not want to talk about it to the manager. So uh, it's going to require a delicate touch. And I think um, Renteria has that. I think, you know, we've seen him over his White Sox career that he doesn't want to criticize guys too much and will take some blame uh, when, you know, maybe it wasn't his to take. And uh, he's, you know, has open communication lines and, uh, he, you know, despite all the losing, you haven't really heard anybody griping about him. You haven't, you know, seen any players giving up. And I think that'll be a useful skill for this year because I think there will be some cases uh, around the league, maybe, uh, where you just have like a critical mass of guys gone or uh, maybe just dealing with uncertain situations. And maybe the manager or the the media environment like criticizes a guy for not showing up or not you know, opting out or what have you. And uh, it's going to take a, a very vocal manager to make sure that uh, the players know that he has, uh, he's supporting them at all times. I think the results of the season and uh, the stats and the standings are more secondary, just making sure that everybody is getting through this okay. And I think that's really the number one job of the manager, and I think he's pretty well equipped to do that. If the White Sox win the World Series, Mark, I could see Rick Renteria having his contract extended. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or or even just like, you know, if he passes this test with flying colors, if like Luis Robert has a great introduction and if he manages like bullpen uncertainty well in like the fifth starter situation, if he manages with a lot of creativity to uh, to patch together starts and, and get through the season and the White Sox go like 40 and 20, uh, you know, and then the postseason happens and it's kind of a crapshoot and what have you. I can still see him like earning a lot of respect that maybe, I mean, I think the White Sox have all the respect in the world for him. And I think they're just loath to make managerial changes anyway, but I can see him changing a lot of minds and this being like his time to shine, especially if like just other situations around the league just really have worse. You you, you see what happens when a guy, when, when, when the job overwhelms a guy, I don't think this job will overwhelm him. Him, I think his skills match up really well to just uncertainty and having the player in mind first. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Azen Rec, and Azen Rec is asking: Regular season play begins this week. What are your biggest concerns about opening day? Well, I, I think you know when it comes to the White Sox, I don't have too many concerns about opening day aside from just the kind of the usual, like you know fifth starter, like we're talking about. If Reynaldo Lopez is better than he showed last year, if you know the free agents, you know, like given the White Sox free agent histories, if uh, the free agents like Keuchel and Encarnacion show up and Grandal, especially if you know this, they show up or if they don't crap the bed immediately, like so many White Sox free agents have done. I mean, those are concerns I have and walks. Yeah, the, the the plate discipline issues that the White Sox might have as a team, but you know that that might happen. Uh, and you know that's really just something you have to live with, uh, especially in a season like this. I think my biggest concern overall is just if the league is ready to handle bad news. And the thing that, you know, I think so far, by and large, the 
introduction of baseball and the way they've gone about it and, and the way players have seemed to handle themselves pretty well. You don't really hear, um, you know, maybe it's just, you know, nobody snitching, but you don't really hear anybody uh, violating team protocols or, or, you know, railing against the system or just how it's, you don't hear of any Aubrey Huffs basically <laughs> among active players, just criticizing how the game is being played. It seems like everybody has the interest in mind. Just watching the Blue Jays situation though, and just seeing a situation where, you know, it was, it seemed maybe not likely that they wouldn't play in Toronto, but it seemed like they should have had a backup plan ready to go in case they didn't get approval. And uh, the federal government did not allow the Blue Jays to, or at least the, the Toronto to host the Blue Jays. Uh, they just didn't, they weren't comfortable with the travel back and forth across the, uh, across the boundary. And, you know, if they had to adhere to uh, protocol from coming back from a high risk area, which the United States is, that they would basically never leave the Rogers Center once they got to Toronto. And it just didn't seem feasible. The country wasn't comfortable with it. The players didn't really like it. And so they, you know, it seemed like they should have had a backup plan in mind. And it doesn't seem like they do, or at least that they don't have one that's immediately ready to go. In Buffalo is possible. I've seen Baseball America touting Rochester as a possibility because it is, you know, if you, especially if you go by ferry, it is uh, as close to uh, uh, Toronto as Buffalo is. But uh, they didn't really have that ready to go. And it's weird that it's as uncertain as it is because, you know, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like, you know, when Chicago has a harsh march and you hear about Roger Bossard working night and day to get the field ready. And I always think they want to inject a little bit of drama into it to keep a little bit of the Roger Bossard mystique alive. But ultimately everything's fine and you have professionals in place who will have the field ready to go. But in this case, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like they are caught with their pants down and they shouldn't have been. It seemed like it should have been in baseball's interest to have, if the Blue Jays weren't taking care of it, baseball should have had a, a a field ready to go for some team that needed them. And that they don't makes me think like, well, if a situation breaks out, if a team is, uh, you know, it, their roster is ravaged by a COVID outbreak in the clubhouse, are they really ready for that? And, and the Toronto situation makes me think that they're they are running on hope a little bit too much. Oh, yeah, especially in the East and West. Uh, I think the Central Divisions are going to be okay. And that may skew our perspectives for those that live in the Midwest where things seem to be going smoothly. But that will not be the case for any of the divisions that have Florida teams or any of the divisions that have teams in Texas and Arizona and Southern California. That's not going to be the case. Uh and, and the, the whole Toronto situation in, in days, in like three or four days, they have to find a new home to play their games. They're going to have to have work with the other teams, the American League East and National League East, to find a new team hotel that they're going to be staying at, a team hotel that is going to follow the health and safety protocols by Major League Baseball. And they need to find living situations for all their players and staff. And they got to do it in like three days. I don't know how this is happening. I, I really don't. And someone suggested on Twitter that, well, maybe the Blue Jays need to be like the New Orleans Saints. And they don't have a home. And they will go play at Yankee Stadium for 10 games where they are the home team for three games. So they're batting the bottom of the ninth instead of the top of the ninth. 
and they're just going to have to play all their games as road games. I mean, that that may sound crazy, but they can't use their spring training facility because it's in the hotbed right now of COVID cases. Buffalo evidently doesn't have good lighting, and Major League Baseball doesn't think that's a good idea. I, what about Charlotte? I mean, that may seem crazy, but it's like Charlotte's a major city. I'm sure they'll, you know, bend over backwards to have a Major League Baseball franchise for a couple of months. Uh, the ball's going to be flying out of the ballpark. Uh, there'll be a lot of home runs, but I mean, this is what it's come down to. And even though right now we are excited for White Sox baseball to come back into our lives and have regular season baseball, Major League Baseball is still not well prepared to have this season. And case in point, one of the 30 teams doesn't have a home. And we have opening day starting on Thursday and Friday. Yeah, and and for circumstances that should have been foreseen. Right. I mean, it was talked about initially, like, you know, as soon as they started talking about a season, one of the subplots was, can the Blue Jays play in Toronto? Exactly. Exactly. So... You know what? There's one rumor that I have heard, and that is the Blue Jays playing in Arlington. Using the Texas Rangers old stadium. So the Rangers would use their new stadium and the Blue Jays would use their old stadium. I wonder if the turf's ready to go. (laughs) What choice do you got? I mean, it sounds like from the reporters, because they converted the stadium to an XFL field for the Dallas Renegades that the left field wall is 250 feet away from where home plate is typically. <laughs> also, oh, it's, man, yeah, also it's Texas, you know, which isn't real convenient for right. the East coast teams and also a place probably where the East coast teams don't want to go. Exactly. So I'd, I don't think that's a good idea either, but I mean, if they need a home, I don't think, Playing in Charlotte is that crazy at this moment? Yeah, I just, it seemed like it, it would have been in the league's interest to have like at least one site in each regional ready to go as an alternate site in case a city uh, or at least like a, a, either a city couldn't fulfill its duties or a city you know, <laughs> so bad that it, it rejected uh, hosting games that, uh, you know, that you have a, a, a a stadium, a minor league stadium that's conducive for the central, one that's conducive for the east, and one that's good for the west. Yep, but they don't have that, Jim. So, and if Florida continues to get worse with their situation, uh, you know, you're you're hearing reports that they're running out of beds and ICU units in a large number of hospitals in Florida. Like, it's just not the Blue Jays. I think at some point the league's going to have to make decisions on the Tampa Bay Rays and the Miami Marlins. Uh, So, again, it's such a weird feeling right now because things are better in Chicago. uh, And because things are better in Chicago, our perspectives are skewed that Chicago's ready to play on opening day. Let's go. But there's a few teams in this league that are kind of in a in, in big trouble spots right now. And the league is running out of days before opening day to find a resolution that will last all season. So if you're a betting man, I would not bet the over and wins for the Toronto Blue Jays. This is, this is <laughs> not going to be a fun season. And you know what? For Blue Jays fans, I feel terrible for them. 
Because how in the world is the Rodgers broadcast team going to do these games? Yeah. No, it's a lot of good questions. Because uh, if you do play in Buffalo or if you go back to the spring training facility, are you are you just going to freelance an entire broadcast crew in like three days to set up to have 30 home games? Like, I just... I, I just don't know. Like I, I don't know. I don't know why Major League Baseball did not have a firm backup plan that if Canada got antsy at all, or if they were to flip flop on the situation, that Major League Baseball would have said, "Okay, we're good to go, no problem. Let's go directly to Plan B." But there is no Plan B, and now the Toronto Blue Jays are in flux. Worst position ever, but. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, as in rec, that's probably my biggest concern as well. That one of the 30 teams doesn't have a home. And uh, I wish the Blue Jays the best of luck. But as in rec, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Gukas Leogito. And Gukas is asking, your daily writing routines must have been thrown all out of whack by moving and the pandemic. Are you ready for opening day, Jim, on a personal level? Yeah, I'm getting back into the rhythm. Like it was weird watching the game tonight and having to be at the mercy of nine full innings and pace of play and just the, uh, well, you know, watching Carson Fulmer come in and not throw strikes and just seeing the inning drag on and we're, you know, looking at the record time. And that was unfamiliar, you know, based on, you know, our recording times have been nice and stable for uh, months now. And so that's a, uh, a little bit new and unfamiliar, but no, otherwise ready to go. And this is a good excuse to talk about uh, the various uh, posts that are going to be on Sox Machine and lead up. Um, I've seen in the drafts that uh, uh, P. Knowles has his opponent previews in the works, so he's getting back in the swing of things. I'm going to have a 30-man roster preview in print, or at least a picture that will be you know adjusting throughout the course of the week. Uh, I'll have my list of the most essential White Sox, usually the top 40, but given that we only have a 59 to play with right now, with Michael Kopech being announced down to 59, I think I just may as well list all 59. Um, I'll also have the most compelling non-White Sox. Uh, and then uh, I think you know the Rick Renteria thing too is just going to be a, a worthwhile discussion as well, just trying to establish how we feel about him, what his job is, how we're going to grade him, and uh, you know, flesh that out a bit more. And then, uh, you know, knock on wood, opening day arrives. We'll be ready for it. Yeah, we'll have our predictions post yep. as well later this week. Greg, Ted, Pinos, and I it'd be crazy to make our predictions for the 2020 season, which you guys can participate as well on SoxMachine.com. Again, we'll have another podcast episode for Friday. We'll have our Sox Machine live to kick off as far as opening day and preview that first game between the Chicago White Sox and the Minnesota Twins. Uh, for those that like to bet or are interested in that, we may have another special edition podcast as well with Joe Ostrowski of 670 The Score sometime during this week that we're trying to, to work out. So, Gukas, we're there, man. It's there's a part of me that's been like wondering if we would ever get to this moment in 2020, but now that it's here, it's it's kind of nice to get back into rhythm, Jim. Yeah, and you know it. Yeah, we may have varying and I would say fluctuating levels of comfort or discomfort with the season, but we're not in control, so we're just going to try to do our jobs, 
uh, best we can and as responsibly as we can. And uh, yeah, I think the other habit we'll have to, you know, I'll have to get in the habit of is just planning multiple posts a day right now, you know, with the season being uncertain and having the idea of like a full calendar year without games that I was just kind of nursing my idea list for as long as possible. But now it's like, oh, now I got multiple posts a day. So I'm going to have to get in the habit of scheduling multiple posts a day. And I think uh, everybody out there is going to get in the habit of, or have to reestablish the habit of revisiting Socks Machine multiple times a day to make sure you don't fall behind on your reading materials. Yeah. Keep visiting SocksMachine.com. No ads. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to worry about... uh, Site being slow or anything like that, just it's uh, it's one it, I I like to think of it as just a nice, quiet place. Yes, and again, the comment section can be fun. Yeah, there's no, good conversations. Like a, yeah, just it's a nice, it's a great community. It's a a nice, clean browsing experience. Uh, just it's we try to make it nice. Yes, like a nice place to be. Yeah, when a lot of places are not. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's but... r- it's rough. No, just it's rough out there for online media. It and is, just, uh, and so you know, fortunately, we're in the position of having done this a long time and having uh, a you know generous community support that you know we can uh, you know we can try to you know keep certain priorities that other businesses with you know other priorities and uh you know bigger budgets and you know whether they're more ad reliant and such they just have to make tougher choices where we have luxury of just in our unique position that we can uh we we can try different methods and uh you know we've and because of that it just i like to think of as a nice place to be and and if you're interested in supporting a nice place to be we certainly appreciate it at patreon.com slash socks machine we'll also of course you'll drop the link later in the show but as we get into gear and we have a whole lot more content coming. It's just, uh, I, I don't mind saying it twice. Well, Gukas, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for PO Socks. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle at a future episode of the Socks Machine Podcast, especially as we enter in the 2020 regular season, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. You could follow me on Twitter at Socks Machine underscore Josh. If you can help support the site and show be, by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash socks machine, where we did get some new swag. So we have some new shirts and we're going to, we've been passing those out uh, to a few of our Patreon supporters. Uh, so those are coming out as well uh, to help celebrate as far as the, the start of the 2020 season. So if you enjoy our content and you want more ad-free podcasts, additional segments on the podcast, additional writings from Jim as far as mailbags, uh, and uh, you want some Socks Machine swag, uh, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine podcast. Again, thank you guys so much for listening. We go back into our regular season schedule. So on Friday, for sure, we're going to have a new Socks Machine Live to preview opening day. And then after that, we'll have the Socks Machine podcast on Mondays. During After the midweek series, we'll have Socks Machine Live again to recap that series. But in between, we're going to have White Sox wake-up calls. So there'll be a new podcast in your podcast feed from Sox Machine 
five days a week starting next Monday. So pretty exciting stuff as we go into full swing with the 2020 season. And knock on wood, there are no stoppages and we play it out and also knock on wood, everything works out for the White Sox and we're talking about a winning White Sox team for the first time in the history of this podcast. (laughs) Oh man, good stuff. But anyways, again, thank you so much for listening. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can listen to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Whether you're buying a new car or used one, it's a big investment, which is why you should choose Pennzoil Platinum. It helps extend the life of your engine and protect it up to 15 years or 500,000 miles, whichever comes first, guaranteed. That's because Pennzoil's base oil is made from natural gas and 99.5% free from engine clogging impurities. The proof is in the Pennzoil. Enrollment required? Keep your receipts. Other conditions apply? See Pennzoil.com warranty for full details. Find it at Firestone Complete Auto Care. Okay, parachutes ready. Boy, the things I go through to get auto loan rates as slow as 0.99% APR for 60 months on new vehicles with PenFed. You are aware that you don't have to be a military member to save hundreds on your auto loan, aren't you? Anyone can join PenFed. As someone terrified of heights, I probably should have looked into that. Probably. Drop me off at the shore. PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org slash autos or call 1-800-247-5626. Advertised rates available through the PenFed car buying service. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA.